Hi. Welcome to Journey Church, especially if you're our guest. It's a privilege and delight to worship God with you today. We've been praying that this day would be meaningful and lasting and deep for everybody here, and hope that's true for you today. If you knew that you had just one month to live, how would you live differently than you are right now? If you knew that you had just one month to live, how would you live differently than you are right now? And I hope you've been journaling with the Lord through that question over the last week, and if you didn't get a journal, you can get one on your way out, and use that, press into that, and ask the Lord that question every single day. Interact with the Lord around that and reflect because it will be a life-changing experience. This week, as I was thinking about that question and journaling about, around that question, I was sitting in some meetings. And as I was sitting in these meetings, not with anybody in this room, of course, I got to thinking, if I had just one month to live, I would not be in this meeting right now. <laughs> anybody else feel the same way about some meetings you were in? Yeah, a few of you out there. Last week, we started the series by talking about how if we knew that we had just one month to live, that we would want to live it much more passionately than we were living right now. We'd be all about passion that God put inside of us to live the life that he intended for us to live. We wouldn't just ho-hum our way through our last 30 days. And today we're going to talk about loving completely. Because I believe if we all knew that we had just one month to live, that we would want to be all about loving completely. And that's for this reason. It's because at the end of the day, what matters most in life is relationships, isn't it? What matters most in life is relationships. Because see, your money and your houses and your cars and your career and your pile of toys, no matter how big your pile of toys is, can never comfort you. They can never console you. They can never cry with you. Nor can they ever love you. It's only, and I mean only, our investment in relationships that has any payoff after this life is long gone. If I knew I had just one month to live, if a doctor came to me and said, Brian, you've got 30 days of life left, I would make those last 30 days of my life about two relationships. First, it would be all about my relationship with God because that comes first for me. It would be all about my relationship with God. Then it would be all about my relationship with others, my family and my friends and my wider community out from there. And that'd be it for me. Everything else would just fall off to the margins. And see, that's the way God intended us to operate. We are relational creatures. God designed us that way. He built that into us. God made us to live in relationship with him and to live in relationship with other people. But relationships, they get messy, right? You might have had some relational messiness just this week. And that's because the relational gig, it's just difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't change the fact that that's what we were made for and no matter how painful they can be at times, if all of us knew we had just one month to live, we'd want to pour all of our love and all of our energy into relationships. But there's trouble in the relational field, isn't there? We're so doggone busy. Our lives these days, they're like in constant motion. We're so busy, we're so preoccupied that relationships that should have substance and meaning, like spouses and families, it's an immense challenge to live in relationships of any substance or any meaning. We're so busy that we starve out the relational peace of living life with people who are supposed to matter the most to us. I believe if I asked every single one of you what matters most in your life, you would say it would be relationships. And while we all say that, so many of us don't live that way. 
We do crazy things like wait until people are dead to send them flowers. Why? Isn't that like, right? You're laughing because it's laughable, right? We wait until somebody is dead until we stand up in front of other people and say nice things about them. We wait until people are dead to credit them for the blessing, the incredible blessing that they've been to us. But that is no way to live life, is it? If we knew we had just one month to live, I believe that we would give ourselves fully to the relationships that matter so much to us. Now, this is quite unorthodox, but go with me, if you would, please. I want you to pull out your cell phone right now. Take it out, please. And you're all in trouble because they're all on. No. I want you to turn them on, actually. Take out your cell phone, and I want you to boot it up. I want you to turn it on, okay? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Hang with me for a second. Don't do anything yet. Like voicemails and text messages are coming in right now, and it's tempting. But hang with me, okay? I'm going to ask you to call someone in your life right now. Yes, you are going to make a phone call from the worship service in this church. Yes. And you're going to call somebody who matters deeply to you, but you have not told them how much they matter to you in far too long. Okay? And so you're going to call them, and you're just going to say, look, I love you, and my pastor's making me do this. And so, no. Not really. Just tell someone in your world how much you love them, how much they mean to you. I don't care who it is. Just somebody who you have not said that to in far too long. If you get a voicemail, leave your kind words like as a message, tell them not to call you back. It makes the pastor mad when cell phones ring and so on. If you don't happen to have a phone, wait till the person sitting next to you is done with their call and ask, seriously, ask if you can use their phone, especially if you need to call someone like overseas Let that newfound friend pay the bill. Ready, set, make the call. Ready, set, make the call. All right, wrap them up. Last night, I did not call Dana, that's my wife, and uh, she called me, and so I got in a little bit of trouble, and I just tried calling her, and I can't find her, so you know where she is, maybe? Why in the world would we take the time to do that in a worship service at church? Like, what? What? Why would we do that? Because I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, that we would be doing those kinds of things every single day of our lives with every single person we possibly could in our relational sphere, right? We'd just make it a habit and a pattern because we only have this limited amount of time. But why in the world would we wait until we had just a limited amount of time to do those sorts of things? And so we did that because it's practice for you. How long did it take? Not very long. You have plenty of time in your day to carve it out and to do those sorts of things, to tell people how much you love them, how grateful you are for them, and that they mean the world to you. It's simple, and it's lasting, and it's meaningful. Don't wait. Just build it into your life. Make it a habit. Make it a pattern. Make it a part of who you are. Just stop waiting for that stuff. But the reason that we do wait, the reason that we don't do those sorts of things is often because we're broken, see? Every single human being on planet Earth, every single one of us, are broken inside in such a way that we want to make life all about us. That's what we think life is about. The whole world revolves around us. 
God made us for relationships with other people, yes. He made us for relationships with him. But our desire for relationship is tainted by a selfishness that says, look out for number one. And so we live life in this tension, turn it off, that goes like this. Just kidding, I know. I told you to turn it on, it's my fault. (laughs) We live life in this tension that says, I know that I was made for relationship. I know that I'm supposed to be in relationship with people, but I come first, doggone it. And so we step out into relationships with that tension fully in play. We want to be loved, right? But then when people don't love us appropriately, we get ticked off at them. We want people to meet our expectations. We never told them what those expectations are. And then when they don't, because they don't have any idea what they are, we get ticked at them again. We want people to cherish us and respect us and care for us, but so often they just stomp on us instead, crushing us, right? And so all of that pain and all of that hardship and all that relational difficulty causes us to crawl into a hole of isolation, telling ourselves, I don't really need anybody else. I don't need relationships. We tell ourselves, we'll just play it safe. We'll stay on the sidelines of the relational field in life. But something inside of us gnaws away, telling us we were meant for something different. We were meant for something deeper. We were meant for relational life with other people. And so how'd that brokenness come about? How in the world did that happen? Well, it goes back to the very first people on the planet, really. You know the story. It went something like this. God created the first man. His name was Adam. And it was very cool. God and Adam hanging out in this beautiful place. And then one day God said these words. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 if you would. This is from the Bible. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. It is not enough, see, for us to be in relationship just with God. You sometimes hear people say, well, it's just me and God. I don't really need other people. I don't really need a wider community. But God thinks otherwise. What he says and does in Genesis 2, 18 proves it. And so you see the story goes on. God formed all of the wild animals and all of the birds and he brought them to Adam to see what he thought of them. Might there be a helper amongst all those creatures that would be just right for him? And Adam looks and he looks And while they were there on display, he went ahead and named them. That probably took a while. And at the end of the day, it might have taken a couple of days. There were not any of the animals who were suited to be a helper for Adam, right? He didn't look on the rhinoceros and go, sweet, that's it. No. And so God made the first woman. Her name was Eve. And she was perfectly suited for Adam. And they were together in that beautiful and fantastic place. And one day, you know how the rest of the story goes. Look at Genesis 3, 6. She, that's Eve, saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. The only tree in the whole place. There's gazillions of trees. God says, just leave this one alone. Don't mess with it. But she, that's Eve, saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And Adam and Eve, they were the very first partners in crime ever, right? They opted to disobey God, and by doing so, they passed down to us this selfish condition that we all carry that says, I matter more than anyone else or anything else on planet Earth. It's me. Yours and my selfish condition, self-centered, me-first behavior is testimony of the sin that Adam and Eve introduced into the human gene pool thousands of years ago. And so 
It's a great question. How in the world do we square up our need for relationship with this incredible selfishness that marks our lives and causes us to repel and withdraw from relationships? It's a simple answer. We can't. There's not much hope in that answer, is there? Oh, good. Glad I came to church today. We can't. Let me clarify, though. By ourselves, we can't. By ourselves, we can't. See, if we ever hope to fully engage in the relationships that God created us to live in, if we ever hope to love completely, that's what we're talking about today, the very source of that kind of love has to come from outside of ourselves. We do not have that kind of love and that kind of ability inside of here to love completely. It's only by us experiencing God's love firsthand that our me-first perspective can be punctured and broken down, that those selfish desires can be laid to rest, and so that we can move out into a place of loving others the way that we were meant to love others, which is completely and totally. And love is all about sacrifice, isn't it? Foundationally, that's what love is about. It is about sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he expressed the greatest sacrifice of love in all of human history. Nothing else even comes close. You talk about remarkable. That the God of the universe would send his one and only son to the planet to put on the flesh of humanity and then that he would allow his one and only son to suffer through the most painful and the most brutal death imaginable. Why would God do that? The answer is because he loves us. He loves us completely and he loves us totally. He loves us with no limits and he loves us with absolutely no strings whatsoever. To put God's sacrifice more in terms that we can get our heads around, let me put it to you this way. There's a story about a man. He ran a drawbridge over a bay in a small ocean town. Every single workday, this man would walk to the control room next to the drawbridge where he ran the drawbridge from that control room. It was a very, very simple operation. When there was an enormous ship that was moving down the channel, he would pull the lever up, allowing the drawbridge to rise. The drawbridge had a train track on it, and the the ship would pass safely underneath. After the ship had passed by, the man would push the lever down so that the trains could once again safely cross the bridge. Just about every day, that man's young son would go to work with him, and he loved watching his dad pull and push that lever that made this giant bridge go up, and that was very manly work, right? One day, the man and son were at work at the drawbridge together. And the man received a message saying that there was an unscheduled train that was on its way and he needed to lower the drawbridge. And that man, he glanced outside the control booth just as he was starting to pull the lever and he saw that his son was playing inside of the gears of the drawbridge, the gears that allow it to go up and down. The man yelled out, of course, for his son, but because of the noise of this nearby shipping yard, the son couldn't hear his dad. And so that man, he raced out of the control room and he ran toward his son to try to grab him and pull him to safety. But as he was running to his son, he was struck by this horrible truth. If he didn't pull that lever right away, the train would plunge off the end of the tracks into the sea below, causing hundreds of passengers to perish. But if he lowered the bridge, his son would be crushed and killed. It was at the last possible second that he made his awful decision He raced back to the control room and he pulled the lever that lowered the drawbridge, collapsing to his knees in agony as his little boy was crushed to death in those giant gears. 
with tears streaming down his face, he looked out of the control room window and he saw the train speeding safely over the bridge. And as he looked out and looked at the train, he could see in the windows of the train and he saw all of the passengers in the train and the passengers, they were working and they were laughing. Some of them were eating. Lots of them were yucking it up on the train. All of them completely and totally oblivious to the incredible sacrifice that he had just made so that they could live. It's a very gripping story. I don't even like to tell it. It's so painful. But how many of us are living life totally oblivious to the incredible sacrifice of love that God made for us? Like the man in that story, God gave up his one and only son to death on the cross for our sin so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free from the guilt and the shame of our past, and so that we could take ownership of an incredibly bright future, a future that includes heaven, mind you. But it's only by our gratefully receiving God's love and experiencing his love firsthand that that me-first perspective that we all carry can be punctured and laid to waste. It's only by experiencing God's love firsthand that those selfish desires can be set aside. It's only by experiencing God's love firsthand that we can completely and totally love others the way that we were meant to love others. Hear this. If you were the very last person on planet Earth, God would have still sent his one and only son to die on the cross for you. He loves you that much. If you were the only passenger on that unscheduled train, God would have still lowered the drawbridge at the expense of his only son to bridge the chasm that exists between you and him. That's how much he loves you. Unquestionable love. And so as we think about gratitude, we all know that it's very difficult to express gratitude for such a gift as God gave us. But we must express gratitude if we ever hope to love completely. I love what Cicero says about gratitude. He said these words, Gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but it is the parent of all the others. See, it's when we're grateful that we are able to live and love in relationships the way that God intended us to live and love in relationships. But we just flat forget to be grateful, don't we? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. If you have a text today, you're welcome to follow along on the side screen. See if this story sounds at all familiar to you. This is what the Bible says in Luke 17, verse 11. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I want to be very clear. Those are lepers, not leopards. There are no talking leopards in the Bible, okay? These are leopards, people with leprosy. They are a leper. And those ten lepers, they had one thing in common. They were on an absolutely hopeless trajectory. Leprosy was the HIV AIDS of Jesus' day. It was the most dreaded disease you can imagine. And leprosy started with these blotches on the skin. Those blotches would evolve into big lumps. Those lumps would eventually become so large that the victim would become disfigured beyond recognition. In the next stage of the disease, this is a picnic, all of the leprosy victims' fingers and toes would just start to fall off one by one by one. No fun. Ultimately, leprosy victims would slip into a coma and die. An awful way to go. 
awful. Now in Jesus' day, leprosy or even the first signs of leprosy, it was like an immediate death sentence. Lepers were made to leave their homes, made to leave their families, made to leave their friends. They were literally cast outside their cities of residence. They had to live outside of the walls of the city in a leper colony. That's where they lived. There were laws on the books that prohibited lepers to pass within 50 yards of a non-leper. The closest you could get to anybody was 50 yards. If you violated this law, they were stoned to death. And I want you to know that that has nothing to do, being stoned to death has nothing to do with illicit drug use, okay? Not illicit drug use. Literally, rocks, stones thrown at you until you die. No illegal drugs involved, all right? Now just imagine that kind of life. Never being able to be touched, never feeling the hug of your own children, never feeling the comforting arm of a caregiver around your shoulder, never again feeling the embrace of even your own spouse. But that's exactly what those 10 lepers in Luke 17 had experienced probably for years. Some of them may have had the disease since they were children because it often takes the disease years to progress. And so they're living an utterly hopeless existence. They had tried everything to get well. Nothing had worked. And then one day, one day, their entire trajectory of living changed. It was the day they encountered a carpenter from Nazareth the one they called the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And notice how they couched their request to Jesus. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, heal us, please. Hey, Jesus, make us well. Take the leprosy away. No. They were careful in their word choice. Have mercy on us. Why'd they do that? I'd suggest they asked Jesus for mercy instead of healing because his reputation for dispensing mercy of all kinds had preceded him. Those 10 lepers had likely heard through the grapevine that Jesus was readily merciful. And what they heard was true. And it's still true to this day, a couple of thousand years later. Now we hear a lot these days about how angry God is, how vengeful God is. As a matter of fact, those two reasons, God is angry and God is vengeful, are the primary reasons that lots of people give as their primary objection to Christianity and living a life of faith. But God wants you to know today that he is, above anything else, readily merciful. None will be turned away from his mercy. When a person cries out to Jesus for mercy, he freely offers it. God is not like some ogre sitting in heaven, hoarding his compassion and needing our persuading to exercise and dispense that compassion. Merely by approaching Jesus humbly, he is ready and he is able to act immediately on our behalf. His action with those lepers proves it. Look at Luke 17, 14. He looked at them, that's Jesus, looked at them, the lepers, and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And watch this. As they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Now, being healed of leprosy was an incredibly rare occurrence. It must have happened on occasion because there was a law in the books that instructed how if you were healed of leprosy, you had to go see the priest who would be the ones to tell you if you were really truly healed or not. It was the priest who made the determination of whether you got to return to your home and your family and your life if you were cleansed enough. But what's so great about Jesus' interaction with these 10 lepers in Luke 17 is that he, notice, told them to go see the priest before they were actually healed. Did you catch that? 
Jesus telling them to go to the priests was the promise that his healing was coming. His healing was already on its way. And can you just imagine, put yourself there that day, if you can, in your mind's eye. Imagine the scene as these ragtag 10 guys, they turned ahead, toward, all right, Jesus, if that's what you say we need to do, we're gonna go do that. And they turned to go towards the temple. And all of a sudden, one of them probably looked down and he saw that the blotches of skin on his arm, well, they were gone. They were absolutely gone. Those lumps and those sores, they were absolutely gone. And that guy, he probably grabbed the arm of one of his buddies. He probably hadn't done that in a long time because he might've been afraid his arm was just gonna fall off if he grabbed too hard because that's what happens with leprosy. It's a little gross, I know, but it's the deal, right? And he grabbed him and said, look, they're gone. And that guy looked down and he said, they're, they're gone. And then all down the line of 10, it went. They were well. They were healed. They were new. And those guys, their legs could not carry them fast enough to the priest to get approved, to get home and get their families back and step back into normal life, right? But in the midst of all of the brouhaha around we've been healed, one of them, just one of the 10, stopped dead in his tracks and was like, hey, 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 wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa. And they probably all screeched to a halt. Just a minute, guys. I gotta go back. I got to tell that guy who healed me, thank you. And the other guys, the other nine, they're looking at him like, what are you talking about? We'll send him a thank you note later. Come on. We haven't seen our family in years. Come on. We got to get to the pre. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. But not that guy. He had to get back and he had to get back right now to properly express his gratitude to Jesus for just such a gift. Look at Luke 17, 15, and 16. One of them, one of the 10, 10%, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, look at this, shouting, praise God. And he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he has done. This man was a Samaritan. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus, thanking him for such an incredible gift. And look at what Jesus asked, Luke 17, 16. Jesus asked, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. There's a lot going on in that text. But that guy realized, one out of 10 realized that everything that he had was a gift from God through Jesus. And so he turned back to give appropriate thanks to the one who had made him well. He was just one out of 10 though. Just one out of 10. And here's what we do. I know this because this is what I did. We go, can you believe those other nine ungratefuls who didn't go back and say thank you to Jesus? Sheesh, I'm glad I'm not like them. Right? That's what we do. Or are we a lot like them? Are we more like those nine ungratefuls than we'd ever like to admit? We have everything, but we take it so for granted. God shows up in our lives just in time, just the way that we need him to show up, and we don't express our gratitude to him for it. We like paint ourselves into a corner. We get ourselves all jammed up and we plead with God to make a way out of the corner that we got ourselves, to make a way out of the jam we got ourselves into. God, I'll do anything. Please just help me now. I'll be yours forever. Anything you, I'll go to Africa, right? But then when he does provide, 
Now, sure, it might not be the perfect solution from our perspective, but he does provide. We just go right on with our lives, never skipping a beat, never stopping to turn back, never stopping to thank him for what he did provide. See, gratitude gets inside of you, and gratitude starts to change you, see? And it's gratitude that unlocks our capacity to love others completely. There's a great line in Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You've all read it, probably seen the movie. It's a powerful line. It's right after the Grinch finally realizes what Christmas is all about. And the line goes like this. And some say the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. And some say that the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. Gratitude expands our hearts in the exact same way. Way. It opens up our heart's capacity to love and to love completely. It enables us to love God and love others totally and completely the way that God intends us to love. Now, this living a life of gratitude has major implications for your life every single day. It has major implications for you personally in your marriage, for example. You who are married, imagine with me for a moment what a little gratitude for the good things about your spouse might do to expand your heart for your spouse. We all have a list of negatives about our spouse in our head, don't we? We like to add to it. There's another one. There's another one. You should see Dana's list about me. Whoa. Holy cow. But what if we started to live on the other side of the list? What if we started to live out of gratitude for the good and the great things about our spouse? There's a lot of marriages that are in a ditch right now. There's a lot of marriages that are in a ditch right now. But what if all it took to turn those marriages, to start to turn them, was a little gratitude for the good things about your spouse? There's a lot of good things about your spouse. That's why you married them. There's a lot of very good things about your spouse. A guy told me a story last night that I have to repeat to you this morning. He said, hey, I've got a friend. And my friend was thinking about ways that he could express love to his wife. And life is hard and marriage is hard. And so one day he knocked off work a little early. And he said, you know, I'm going to get flowers for my wife. I know how much she loves flowers. And so he was like, okay, he's a male, right? So he's like, where, where do I go to get flowers? Costco, he says. Costco has great flowers at a reasonable price. Smart guy, right? They're beautiful flowers. So he swings into Costco. He picks up reasonably priced flowers. He takes them home. He sets them on the table. He puts them in a vase. He waits for his wife to get home. And his wife comes home from the end of her day. And he says, honey, I just love you. And I don't express that to you often enough. And I love you so much. I stopped and I got you some flowers today and just thought that would be meaningful to you. And she looked at him, and she looked at those flowers and said, you know, if you're going to get me flowers, at least get them from a florist. That's living on the other side of the gratitude scale, isn't it? That's living on the other side. But what if you were to be grateful, every single day grateful, for the good things about your spouse? Imagine the life that that would infuse into your marriage. Try it. Please. Try it. Gratitude has major implications for your relationships with friends and family. As you do things like we did, we picked up the phone together and we made a phone call to somebody telling them how much they mean to us. 
That's gratitude. That's living out of a heart of gratitude. You spoke words of thanksgiving and words of life and words of love to that person. Gratitude has major implications in your relational world. And gratitude has major implications in your relationship with God. Those of you who follow Jesus, as you gratefully receive God's love through his son, Jesus Christ, as you live out a grateful obedience to him every single day, you're just going, God, you've done so much for me. I'll do anything you ask. Whatever you ask, I'm there. I'm yours. I'm all in God. Living a life of gratitude has significant personal implications but it also has mega implications for us as a community of faith called Journey Church because gratitude isn't just all about us and our personal world, see? If you ask me what my number one hope for our church is over the long haul, meaning what's my number one hope for a person who is around this community for any length of time at all, it's that we would live a life of gratitude. It's that we would be people who live lives marked by gratitude. Now, of course, that assumes that I want every person around this place to be saved. I want every person in the 65,000 people in our valley who are living life far from God today to be saved as well. But right after you being saved and right after you continuing to live life in relationship with God, it is of utmost importance to me and I believe to God as well that we are a people whose lives are marked by an immeasurable gratitude. Now that would be one of our hallmarks as a community. When you stop and think about all that God has done in your life, how can you be anything but grateful? As you consider how before you met Jesus Christ, you were headed for an eternity separated from God, an eternity of immense suffering, and that God spared you from that kind of suffering, how can you be anything but grateful? As you consider all that God has blessed your life with, great friends and great families, a great church, material abundance, that is the envy of the world, literally. Now, I know college students, you like think that you're broke as a joke, right? That's how it feels when you're a college student. But I promise you, as broke as you feel right now, you are still richer than the majority of the world, and you are the envy of, you're a gazillionaire in the eyes of the world. We have so much, but we take it so much for granted. How can we be anything but grateful for all that God has blessed us with? And see, it's when we stop, and we stop dead in our tracks, just like that leper did, and we fall down at the feet of Jesus, and we give thanks to God for everything that he's blessed our lives with. That's when gratitude starts to expand the real estate of our hearts and causes us not just to be focused on us, not just to be focused on our needs, not just to be focused on our wants, but it rather turns our hearts to this posture that says, I am so incredibly grateful to God for all that he has done in me and for me that I will do everything and anything possible to make sure that others are recipients of the same life and the same blessing that God has allowed me to experience. Gratitude actually causes us to love completely with the exact same love that God loves us with every single day. Gratitude causes you to wake up every single morning and go to bed every single night thinking about and even praying for the 65,000 people who are living life in our valley far from God right now. If Jesus Christ came back right now, 65,000 people who you all know and you all love and you all do life with, it would spend an eternity 
apart from Jesus Christ. And gratitude causes us to get our hearts around that reality. And gratitude causes us to ask God to use us redemptively in the lives of just a few of those 65,000 people. Gratitude causes us to ask God to let us help them one by one by one step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Gratitude causes you to think about your church and it causes you to serve your church. Gratitude causes you to look across your life and the gifts that God has given you, the talents that he has blessed you with. And gratitude causes you to engage in the serving game and be about building the kingdom of God. God gave you the talents you have after all. Not just so that you could hoard them, but so that you could construct and build his kingdom right here on planet earth, right through your church. Gratitude causes you to regularly appropriate some of the money that God has entrusted you with, that he has asked you to steward as an offering to God's work right here on the planet. God has given us all so much. How can we not just return a small portion of it to him? That's what gratitude causes us to do. It causes us to reorder our lives, reorder our priorities, to think about relationships and engage in all of life, relationally and otherwise, out of a posture of gratitude so that we could love completely the very way that God loves us. I'm gonna ask if you would please to take your things and just set them aside, close up your books and just bow your heads if you would and close your eyes and just speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart and mind. You can do that now. I'm just going to ask you in this time to stay in a posture of prayer, to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would. If you're a Christ follower sitting in this room today, your primary challenge today is to be all about loving completely. Not just for the next 30 days, but forever. For as long as God gives you to love completely. If you're a Christ follower sitting here today, your challenge is to put your relational world in such an order that the relationships that you say matter so much to you are getting the attention they need to thrive. Not just to survive, but to actually thrive. For you who follow Jesus, your challenge today is to live a life of gratitude to God for all that he's done in your life. Your challenge today is to refuse to be like those nine ungrateful lepers who wouldn't turn back to thank Jesus for healing them. Your challenge today is to be the one who regularly and completely falls at the feet of Jesus and thanks him profusely for his gifts to you. If you're a Christ follower here today, your challenge is to allow gratitude God's gratitude inside of you to expand the real estate of your heart so that you're not just focusing on yourself, what you want, what you're going to buy, but rather gratitude that melts your heart 
and turns into a posture that says, I am so grateful to God for everything that he has done in me and for me that I will do everything possible to make sure that others are the recipients of the same life and the same blessing and the same love that God's allowed me to experience. And those are heavy challenges, Christ followers. And I invite you to use this time to do business with God around those, to drive some stakes in the ground in this time, to make some decisions with God about how you're going to walk those out, how your life will be different because you're deciding to live a life of gratitude. And maybe you're here today and you're not yet a person who follows Jesus. It is your opportunity today to receive God's complete and total love for you. Your opportunity today is to take Jesus up on his offer of life and salvation and hope that he extends to you right now. You can settle it once and for all. You can acknowledge how much Jesus loves you. You can acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross to be your savior and the rescuer of your soul. And you can choose in this moment to put your faith and your trust in him as your savior by the blood he shed on the cross for you. And if that's you, if that's the decision of your heart and life today, I'd invite you just to express that to God. You can do that by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned, but today I realize that you are perfect, that you are holy, and that that sin has separated me from you. And God, I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for that sin, and I ask you to please forgive me, and please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend and I need you to change me and I need you to clean my life up. And God, would you please make me all about living a life of gratitude so that I can love completely, so that I can love like you love, God. And that decision right there to give your life to Jesus Christ is the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. Nothing is more important And around here, it's such a big deal that we ask people to tell us when they made that decision. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. Nobody's looking around this room except me. But I just would ask you, if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I did that. I gave my life to Jesus Christ today. Just slip your hand up and make, I see that hand way in the back, way to go, way back there. I see you, absolutely. And you over there, way to go. God is changing you and he's making you new. Yeah, I see that hand back there, way in the back. Right now, God is changing you. He's expanding the real estate of your heart around him right now. Are there any others? I don't want to miss you. Just make sure I catch your eye if you would, please. It's too big ass and you right there too. Yes, I see you. Way to go. Life will never be the same for you. God, we're unbelievably grateful to you for everything that you've blessed our lives with. 
Our words fall way short of even being able to express to you our gratitude for everything you've done for us and continue to do. It wasn't like you just did one thing and then stopped. It continues minute by minute, even to the breath that we breathe, God. I pray that we would be grateful people. That our lives would be marked by humble gratitude to you for all that you've done. God, that this community called Journey Church, that it would be our hallmark. And that that gratitude would cause our hearts to well up and to get around all of the people in our community who are living life far from you. That we would want for them the same thing that you've given to us. And God, that you would help us engage with those folks regularly and completely. That we would actually be able to demonstrate your love to them tangibly, one by one by one by one. We want the whole world to know that you are the Savior of the world. And God, we're stepping up. We're saying, we're going to do our part, God. Would you just trust us, and would you just use us, and would you just send us, please, God? We're all yours. We are all yours. And we're so grateful. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, 